The reading from tonight can be found on page 636, right at the bottom, uh, subtitle, Wisdom Bestows Wellbeing. My son, do not forget my teaching, but keep my commands in your heart, for they will prolong your life many years and bring you peace and prosperity. Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them round your neck, write them on the tablet of your heart, then you will win favour and a good name in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. This will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. Honour the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline. And do not resent his rebuke, because the Lord disciplines those he loves, as a father the son he delights in. Blessed are those who find wisdom, those who gain understanding, for she is more profitable than silver and yields better returns than gold. She is more precious than rubies. Nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand, in her left hand are riches and honour. Her ways are pleasant ways, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her. Those who hold her fast will be blessed. By wisdom, the Lord laid the earth's foundations, and by understanding, he set the heavens in place. By his knowledge, the watery depths were divided, and the clouds let drop the dew. My son, do not let wisdom and understanding out of your sight. Preserve sound judgment and discretion. They will be life for you, an ornament to grace your neck. Then you will go on your way in safety and your foot will not stumble. When you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Have no fear of sudden disaster or of, a ruin, of the ruin that overtakes the wicked. For the Lord will be at your side and will keep your foot from being snared. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to act. Do not say to your neighbour, come back tomorrow and I'll give it to you when you already have it with you. Do not pop the harm against your neighbour who lives trustfully near you. And do not accuse anyone for no reason when they have done you no harm. Do not envy the violent or choose any of their ways. For the Lord detests the perverse, but takes the upright into his confidence. The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the home of the righteous. He mocks proud mockers, but shows favour to the humble and oppressed. The wise inherit honour, but fools get only shame. Good evening. Uh, I was uh, driving home from uh, Birmingham yesterday. I was at uh, a series of meetings in, in Birmingham. I was driving back, uh, listening to the commentary on uh, the England versus Italy rugby game. Uh, and various people were making their debuts. And Paul Grayson, who uh, is a World Cup winning uh, rugby player um, from back when England were good, um, was, was just talking about what an extraordinary day it is when you make your debut for your country. He said all the hard work, all the sacrifice, all the devotion, the life that you've lived to that moment suddenly pays off. And it's an extraordinary, a wonderful, a magical day. Uh, and it reminded me of some years before when um, I heard Kelly Holmes um, 
the athlete who, who won uh, Olympic gold being interviewed on the radio. And uh, I remember the very sort of strange experience of hearing this extraordinary athlete who was still trying to come to terms with uh, having won gold medals uh, singing to her medals live on the radio, singing a song about how much she loved them and how she lived for them. Uh, And it struck me that uh, for the elite sports person, sporting performance is absolutely the highest desire. It is the thing that you subjugate your whole life to, that you sublimate everything else for. What you eat, when you sleep, what you do with your time, everything is dedicated to that goal. You literally live for it. Uh, And uh, Proverbs 3 sort of picks up that idea of of kind of ultimate desire. Uh, And um, in this chapter, the writer wants us to desire wisdom the way Kelly Holmes desired that gold medal. Wants us to see that wisdom is something worth dedicating your life to getting. Look at um, at uh, verses 13 to 20. If you would, we're on page 636, 637. Uh, There are all sorts of instructions about things to do. Well, actually, more about things not to do. We'll talk about why that is in a minute. Twelve things not to do uh, in Proverbs chapter 3. But right in the middle, from verses 13 to verse 20, there's almost a hymn to wisdom. And just as advertising works with desire, very few adverts work on your rational mind, do they? When you're watching television or uh, trying to watch something on YouTube and the adverts pop up, uh, the adverts are there to try and capture your heart, your desire. Uh, And look at uh, what the writer says in verse 15. Wisdom is more precious than rubies. Nothing you desire can compare with her. So wisdom offers better returns than gold, is more profitable than silver. She offers long life, riches, and honor. In fact, here in chapter 3, wisdom is, is held out as the key to health and wealth, and prosperity. Look at um, uh, verse uh, 10. Your barns will be filled to overflowing. Your vats will brim over with new wine. Look at verse 8. This will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. Look at verse uh, 4. Then you'll win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. Verse 2. It will prolong your life many years and bring you peace and prosperity. Uh, Or look down uh, to uh, verses 16 and 17. 
Long life is in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are pleasant ways and all her paths are peace. A life of abundance, pleasantness, peace, safety, and security. The one who gets wisdom gets all that. That's what the writer says. That's where wisdom leads, to the life that you've always wanted, to a life that really works. Now, if you look at um, verses uh, 19 and 20, you you get an idea of uh, why that would be. By wisdom, the Lord laid the earth's foundations. By understanding, he set the heavens in place. By his knowledge, the watery depths were divided and the clouds let drop the dew. If you live by wisdom, you are cutting with the grain of reality. You are living God's way in God's world. He made the world with wisdom, and if you live with wisdom, life works. That's the basic idea. Uh, And yet, there's uh, another uh, sort of pattern at play here. Uh, which um, you get particularly in verses uh, 31 to 35, where the camera sort of zooms out a bit, uh, and there's this picture of almost a sort of cosmic view of life, uh, in which you see that the way it works out is uh, the Lord detests the perverse but takes the upright into his confidence. The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked but he blesses the home of the righteous. He mocks proud mockers but shows favor to the humble and oppressed. The wise inherit honor but fools get only shame. There's a wider perspective here in which there is an accounting for your life before the God who made you and the difference between wisdom And foolishness, or uh, in the words of chapter 3, violence, perversity, wickedness, mockery. The contrast is that God is pleased with the one who lives his way and hates the one who doesn't. Now, just thinking about how wisdom makes life work, um, you can see that um, wisdom here in chapter three really is about sort of living God's way. Verses uh, 27 to 31 show that, that, that the life of wisdom is, is the life of doing justice. Don't withhold good from those to whom it's due. Don't say to your neighbor, come back tomorrow when you already have it with you. Don't plot harm against your neighbor who lives trustfully or faithfully near you. Don't accuse anyone for no reason. This is the way of verse three. Let love and faithfulness never leave you. It's the image of uh, living according to the Ten Commandments. Jesus summarizes the whole of the Old Testament law in two sentences. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, 
We, I think, sometimes make a mistake when we hear that. And we think that what Jesus is doing is saying, well, look, the rules don't really matter, just so long as you do what's loving. But actually, when you think about it, what Jesus is saying is the rules tell you what love looks like. The Ten Commandments tell you what loving God and loving your neighbor look like. Love isn't what you feel in that sense. It is doing what is loving, and God tells us what that is. So let's take one of the uh, Ten Commandments, um, not completely at random, but we're told not to bear false witness. We're not, we're not to lie. We're not to be people who speak falsely about or to others. Now, you can see, can't you, how being a truthful person would in general and uh, in the long term tend to be to your good. You can see why if you're a truthful person at what is said uh, in verse four about the person who uh, follows uh, the teachings, uh, you win favor and a good name. If you're someone who can always be trusted to tell the truth, well then there is respect that follows that in general and in the long term. Um, I was uh, looking for a passage within a a book I have on my shelf by a guy called David Marfleet, who was um, a helicopter pilot in the army. He flew for the SAS and then uh, joined the Missionary Aviation Fellowship. And fairly early on uh, in in his career, the commanding officer uh, asked him to man the telephones, and he did so. Uh, The phone rang. He picked it up, uh, announced the name of the person who was calling, and the CEO said, tell him I'm not here. Now, David was a... Uh, Christian, uh, even then, and he, um, he said into the phone, uh, he's asked me to tell you that he's not here. Now, how does that work out? Well, in that instance, um, David had a conversation that went along the lines of one that you may have heard about before, in which he basically said to the CA, well, here's the thing, if I can lie for you, I can lie to you, wouldn't you rather have someone you can trust on your staff? Yes. Uh, And so in the long run, even though he was disobeying his commanding officer, even though he was doing something that seemed sort of dangerous and uncomfortable, it worked out well for him. I'll tell you about another person uh, I know who um, deals in commodities or dealt in commodities in the city of London, uh, to the point at which he'd become one of the largest traders in it globally. Uh, And uh, on one occasion, uh, representatives of the Chinese government asked him a question where it felt like it would be in his interests to lie, but he told them the truth. But assuming that everyone lies in business... Uh, the Chinese government assumed he was lying to them, took an, op- took an opposite position, and he made such an enormous killing uh, that he actually had to sell the business because it had just got too big. Telling the truth, in general, in the world that God has made by his wisdom, has good results. There is benefit in wisdom in everyday life, it works. Except for when it doesn't. Because I know people who 
by telling the truth when the company wants them to lie, have ended up in disciplinary situations or even lost their jobs. Sometimes doing the right thing doesn't immediately bring blessing. It brings pain. Think about it, the Lord Jesus. Has there ever been a more truthful human being who's walked the face of the earth and yet telling the truth got him crucified? And he made it very clear throughout his ministry. As you read through the Gospels, he says, you know, it is for telling the truth that you hate me. Uh, and in fact, um, one of the passages in the Old Testament that, that most clearly points forward to the crucifixion of Jesus, to his unjust suffering, to the pain that he would bear on behalf of his people, do you know how it begins? My servant will act wisely. That's the beginning of that section of Isaiah 52 into Isaiah 53. My servant will act wisely. And so what will happen to him? Disgrace. Suffering. Rejection. And death. Sometimes doing the right thing will cause you loss and will cause you hurt. And this is the point at which we have to remember that Proverbs is not a sort of recipe book for success. It's not a book of promises where if you do this, this will be the outcome. It's not a book of promises in that sense. It's not a book of law. And nor indeed is it a book of magic. Do this, this will be the result. But it says, in general, cutting with the grain of reality brings benefits in life. And it really does. But it's a bigger picture than just what happens immediately. Uh, So in one sense, the heart of the passage is this, this sort of hymn to wisdom. But in another sense, and I think this is crucial, the real heart of the passage is verses five and six. Because this shows us that Doing the right thing, even when it feels like the wrong thing, is always the right thing. Doing the right thing, even when it feels like the wrong thing, is always the right thing. Uh, And uh, here within verses 5 and 6, we see why the life of the wise is in so many ways summed up by these 12 do-nots that we find in the passage. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. Now, I don't know if you notice in verses five and six, uh, the the sort of three ideas, uh, they cover the whole of life, the whole of who you are. Do you see that? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. And in all your ways, that is in in the way that you live, in everything that you do, submit to him. Your heart, your head, 
your life. What you think, what you desire, what you do. It's a holistic vision of human life. Wisdom's not just about thinking, it's not just about feeling, and it's not just about doing. It is all three together. But it starts with the heart. First half of verse five. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. What does that mean? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. What does it mean to trust in something? Now, in one sense, all of you are trusting in the chairs that you're sitting on. You are depending on them not to collapse. As one of my first ever preaching engagements, I was sat, Sam's laughing because she was there, uh, sat at the front of church waiting uh, for the Bible reading to finish, and gradually the legs of my chair sort of splayed apart, and I rather, gra- rather sort of gracefully just sank down to the floor with my legs sticking out straight in front of me. Now, these are a much better quality of chair than that church had. But you're trusting in the chair to keep you off the floor, to keep you uh, safely sat and relatively comfortable. But um, the idea of sort of trusting in the Lord with all your heart is, uh, is the idea of actually, in the end... It being God that is the ultimate sort of goal, the highest value in your life. That it's God that you ultimately depend on. The one that you look to to give your life meaning and value and security. Now, if you ask yourself for a moment, what is the one thing I could not live without? What is the thing that if it was taken away, life would just be empty? That I could see no purpose in it anymore? Uh, Sometimes um, we're not aware of those things until we lose them. It can be a pretty good indicator. It can be things like, well, what makes me angry? What makes me irrationally angry? What what, what is it that, that sort of, you know, actually if something happens, my reactions are out of all proportion. Often that's a sign that something is just touching on the thing that you really trust in. So I know, for instance, that one of the things that I'm tempted to sort of trust in for a sense of of kind of self, for a sense of significance, you know, is what other people think of me. Uh, and if I feel sort of ashamed or disgraced or that, you know, I'm, I'm out of favor with people, you know, that can have a sort of disproportionate effect on my sense of well-being and my sense of my life being valuable and significant. Perhaps the same is true for some of you. Perhaps, um, you know, for various reasons, um, it's something quite different from that. It's not so emotional. It's more sort of tangible. You know, if, if you don't have money... If you don't have savings, if you don't have a sense of financial security, it feels like the world is falling in. It's striking, isn't it, that many of the things that God tells us not to do 
in this passage touch on some of those things that might take our place in his hearts. Say verse 9. Honor the Lord with your wealth. If you have money, if you value money, the best thing to do with it is to subjugate it to the God who made you. Honor God with your wealth. Give it away. Trust him. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And and that means actually quite actively sort of digging out and rooting out those other things that would take God's place in your heart. Things that the Bible calls idols. Gods, false gods that we worship in God's place. Things that we're tempted to live for instead of living for him. The way of wisdom is to put God absolutely number one, to desire him above all things. That's the first thing. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Make him number one. How do you do that? Well, I think what follows helps to explain it. Lean not on your own understanding. I guess that's why we have all these do nots in the passage. What comes naturally to us, what seems right to us, is so often wrong. There's a book in the Old Testament called Judges, perhaps you know it. It follows the five books of Moses and then the book of Joshua. It describes the early years of God's people, the people of Israel, living in the land that he had promised to them. And I would not recommend it as a read to you if you are squeamish, because it is grim. And it gets progressively worse. And if we were not, you know, reading from it in the scripture, I would find it hard to tell you about some of the things that happen towards the end of the book. The people act in ways that are gut-wrenching and appalling. And the very last line of the book sums up what's gone on and the chaos and the anarchy of the people of Israel in one sentence. In those days, Israel had no king and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. We think, don't we? We think that if we just do what we think is right, if we just try to do the right thing, then everything will be fine. And yet, experience tells us, the bitter experience of God's people in the book of Judges says, tells us that when people do what is right in their own eyes, the result is chaos and anarchy and brutality. Lean not on your own understanding. Now, we can see how that might work out in a very simple way in everyday life, can't we? Well, we're faced with a situation like that one I described with David Marfleet. You know, he's answered the phone. The boss says, tell them I'm not here. 
there is an obvious thing to do in that situation, isn't there? There's a thing that feels right, that feels like the only option in many ways to us, our employer who holds all kinds of power over us, who can take away our security, who can make it difficult for us to feed ourselves or our families, tells us to do something. Tell them I'm not here. And you can imagine running through the calculus in your head, can't you? Well, okay, well, what will the outcome be if I don't do what I've been asked to do by my employer? What will the outcome be? And that's what living on your own understanding looks like. You think, well, I would do the right thing. I would tell the truth. But actually, the outcome of telling the truth will be bad. You see, I think that's the point uh, of, of the whole chapter. In one sense, we think sometimes the outcome of doing what God has told us to do will be bad. Sometimes doing the right thing feels like the wrong thing. But, and this is a deep challenge, isn't it? Proverbs 3, verse 5 tells us, trust in the Lord with all your heart, trust God, put him highest, and so, don't lean on your own understanding. That's a way of putting into practice what it looks like to trust in the Lord with all your heart. To do what he says is right, even when it feels wrong. Not because it feels evil, but just because it feels like it's not going to work out well for you. You know, when it feels like if you put the correct figures into your tax return at the end of the year, that you will go bankrupt. Doing the right thing can feel so easily like the wrong thing. So trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding. The world is bigger and more complex than you can imagine. And we often think we know what the results of our actions will be. But what Proverbs tells us is that the way of wisdom is to submit ourselves to God even when that feels dangerous and even foolish. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your paths straight. The way to learn to love God in some ways is this virtuous circle of doing what he says submitting to him so life changes heart changes mind, changes life it's one of the fascinating things for me anyway as I look at the scriptures and when I see wisdom described not just in the book of Proverbs but, but throughout the Bible is that much wisdom comes only as a result of doing what wisdom requires that the only way to become a wise person is to live wisely. It's not just cerebral. It's not just about your mind. It's about your desires. And how do desires change? Well, in part, by living as if you desired the things that God tells you you should desire. Primarily him. Perhaps it's a, 
a good idea for us to just take a moment to be quiet, just to think, where does it feel dangerous for me, frightening for me to trust in the Lord? Where does it feel like a real pinch point for me right at the moment to believe his word and not just my intuition, not just to lean on my own understanding? What is there in my life where I'm living my way, not his way? Verse six, how am I not submitting to him? Just take a moment to to think about that. There's so much more in this passage that we could look at. But I think verses 11 and 12 uh, are an important place for us to just stop off for a moment. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline. Do not resent his rebuke because the Lord disciplines those he loves. As a father, the son he delights in. It's interesting, isn't it? Don't despise the Lord's discipline. Don't resent his rebuke. Sometimes as we come to his word, as we listen uh, to the scriptures together, they're uncomfortable. They're discipline and rebuke. They say to us, change. But the writer wants us to know That is not a sign that God doesn't love you, but a sign that he does. The Lord disciplines those he loves as a father, the son he delights in. We should expect that at times God will disagree with us. We should expect that at times God will correct us. Will ask us to let go of things things in our lives, things that we hold dear in our hearts because he has something so much better for us. We started off by talking about desire, about love. This is the God who loves you so much that he gave his only son for you. The God who loves you so much that though he's told us what he thinks of the perverse and the upright in verse 32, he detests the perverse, takes the upright into his confidence. None of us could claim to be totally upright and yet he has given his son Jesus so that we can know him that way. He can take us into his confidence. There's a thing to take away and think about. What does it look like to be taken into the confidence of the God who made the universe? God loves you more than you would ever dare to imagine. And he has paid a higher price to have you than you could conceive of. He really does love you. And so, he really is the one thing in all reality that you can trust in with 
all your heart. I'm going to pray for us for the things that we've thought about, the delicate, slightly painful areas perhaps that God's put his finger on for each of us tonight. Heavenly Father, thank you that you discipline your children, that you rebuke those you love because you love them. Father, you know the things in our hearts, the things in our minds, the things in our lives, the points at which we resist you or value things above you. Lord, we know that your word tells us that those things are foolishness, that they bring only destruction in the end. And yet they feel so precious to us. Lord, teach us to see you as you are to wonder at your beauty and your value and your goodness and to desire you in a way that changes everything. Thank you that your love teaches us to love you in return. And we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you will take these lessons from your word and make them real to us in our hearts, in our minds and in our lives so that we will become people marked by wisdom and all its fruits and benefits. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.